0: Let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 37. We are back in Genesis. Um, after w- last Sunday, we uh, re entered into our uh, series through Genesis. And Lord willing, though there's going to be Sundays where we're pulling away for various things like Father's Day, Mother's Day, and Easter and what have you, uh, we're uh, for the most part back in Genesis until we're done. So hold me accountable to that. Uh, But Genesis uh, 37, if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Rebelling Against a Dream Dominion. Rebelling Against a Dream uh, Dominion. And coming to chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, we're coming to the last major section of of this wonderful book. Speaking about this section of the book of Genesis that begins in chapter 37, uh, the commentator Leupold says, this portion of the book of Genesis is without a doubt the most interesting and dramatic of the entire book. And we begin to get a flavor of why that is so uh, even in our passage today. So if you found the book of Genesis gripping uh, so far, You will really love this final section that we will be studying in the coming months. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 36 in its entirety, and we saw the story of Esau, who is Jacob's brother, uh, prospering in the land of Edom. In Genesis 37, verse 1, the camera turns back to Jacob, and we're told in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, these words. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father, Isaac, had sojourned in the land of Canaan. We learn later in this chapter that Jacob is right now living in Hebron, uh, which is where Isaac lived out his final days. Uh, The narrator then says in verse 2, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Much of what follows will be about Joseph and Jacob's other sons, but the presence of Jacob is going to continue all the way uh, into the final chapter of the book of Genesis. So what follows through the rest of the book is essentially the story of Jacob and his household. When the events of Genesis 37 take place, um, this may come as a shock to you, but Jacob will be 108 years old right now in Genesis 37. He's in the land of Canaan, as we just saw, and probably thinks that he's going to live out the rest of his life in peace. Little does he know that his final 39 years of life will be his most dramatic years. In fact, 22 years from our passage today, uh, Jacob will be speaking to the Pharaoh in Egypt And he will say, few and unpleasant, which is the Hebrew word for bad or evil. Few and bad have been the years of my life. And a huge reason for Jacob's choice of that word is found in the chapter that we begin to study today, Genesis 37. All we're going to do today with the time that we have is cover verses 1 through 20. And we'll end this morning with the description of Joseph's brother's initial plot uh, against uh, Joseph to kill him, followed by them saying, and this is how verse 20 ends, then we will see what becomes of his dreams. In fact, you will notice that dreams are a central feature of the passage that we're going to look at uh, today. In verse 5, we're told that Joseph had a dream. In verse 6, he says to his brothers, please listen to this dream. In verse 8, we're told that his brothers hated him for his dreams. In verse 9, we're told that Joseph had still another dream. And then he says to his brothers in verse 9, lo, I have still, I've had still another dream. In verse 10, his father says, what is this dream that you have had In verse 19, his brothers see him approaching and say, here comes this dreamer. They form a plot against him and then say in verse 20, then let us see what will become of his dreams. Ultimately, the thing that we're going to see that is so offensive to Joseph's brothers about his dreams is that they feature Joseph in a position of dominion over his brothers. Joseph's brothers despise that thought of Joseph being over them or in dominion over them, and they would rather kill Joseph than ever allow it to happen that he would rule over them. And most of us should resonate with that on some level. This was the default setting of all of our hearts toward Jesus Christ until God saved us and changed our hearts. Most of us know how the the story of Joseph and his brothers will end by the time all is said and done. We know that one day Joseph's brothers will bow before Joseph exactly as Joseph dreamed that they would. But we also know that Joseph's dominion will be a dream dominion, a good dominion characterized by forgiveness and rescue and abundant provision and hospitality and love. But these brothers don't know that yet when we're in Genesis 37. They're filled with pride and jealousy and hatred and sin, and they really only know one thing. They know that they don't want Joseph ruling over them. And so as we look at our passage today, we're going to observe six developments in the story of Joseph's brother's plot to dash his dreams of dominion over them. And the first development in this story that's going to unfold on us as we go verse by verse is that Joseph brings a bad report about his brothers to his father. And the story begins with Joseph tattling on his brothers. Observe what is said in verse 2. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpa, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. The picture in verse 2 is of Joseph out in the fields with uh, his brothers and especially assigned to help his brothers Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher who were the sons of Zilpah and Bilha as you recall. Now we're not given any details about what happened on this occasion but something happened while Joseph was serving with his brothers that resulted in him going to his dad and bringing a bad report to his father about what his brothers had done. At the very least, we can know that Joseph is reporting something bad that his brothers had done wrong and that it damaged their reputation in their father's eyes. It's also possible that the narrator is hinting at the fact that Joseph may be doing here a bad reporting job and erring in some way. Here and commentators speculate about this, and some are convinced that Joseph is doing wrong here, and others are not so convinced. The narrator does not elaborate or give us any more details other than what we see in this verse. He just tells us the basics of what happened because of how it contributed to the events that are going to follow in the coming verses. We're not told anything about what Joseph's brothers thought about. Joseph's damaging report that he had given to his father about them, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out what they must have felt. How many of you have ever been tattled on in your life? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever tattled? Okay. More hands have gone up. Yeah, it doesn't take a genius to know how these brothers must have felt. You know how you felt when someone has tattled on you. They would have resented Joseph for being a tattletale little brother, a sniveling rat. (laughs) They would have also realized from this where Joseph's loyalties lie. If his brothers do something wrong that their father would deem to be wrong, Joseph would side with his father over his brothers. So Joseph's brothers now know that Joseph's loyalty is with his dad and not with them. So you see a separation that's commencing here. There's something else that happens that serves to intensify this toxic brew between Joseph and his brothers. And this brings us to the second development in the story of Joseph's brothers plot to dash his dreams of dominion over them. Number two, Joseph's brothers hate him, seeing how their father loves him more than them. Observe what is said in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. The statement here at the beginning of verse 3 could mean that Joseph's father loved Joseph more than each of his other sons, or it could mean that he loved Joseph more than all of his other sons combined. Either way, notice that the narrator uses the name Israel, not Jacob, putting emphasis on the fact that Jacob is acting here in his capacity as Israel, the name that God had given to him, the prince of God, who is the father of the coming people of Israel and acting within his identity as the head of the coming nation that is going to descend from him, Israel, Jacob, is favoring Joseph, clearly choosing Joseph to be the son who will have preeminence in Israel. Notice the reason that Israel loves Joseph so much. The text says because he was the son of his old age. When you do the math, you see that Jacob was around 91 years old when Joseph was born. People lived longer back in this day, so don't be weirded out by that. Benjamin was born several years after Joseph, but Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, the woman he wanted to marry at the outset. And Joseph being the son of his father's old age also means, no doubt, that he was the son who was the most by Jacob's side during this older season of Jacob's life. Joseph was, no doubt, a constant and helpful companion to his father in his old age, and Jacob would have felt the deepest sort of connection and spiritual kinship With Joseph, making the two of them inseparable in these years of Jacob's life. As an expression of Jacob's favoritism of Joseph, we're told at the end of verse 3 that he made him, he, Jacob, or Israel, made him, Joseph, a very colored tunic. A very colored tunic. The Hebrew expression that is translated, very colored tunic tunic is ketonet passim, ketonet Pasim. And the word katonet speaks of a tunic or a robe, and the word passim can speak of the palm of the hand or the soles of the feet, a fact that causes many interpreters to suggest that this particular tunic that Jacob is making for Joseph has sleeves that extend all the way to the hands and its bottom extended all the way to Joseph's ankles. In fact, the first century historian Josephus understood Joseph's tunic in exactly this way, understanding it as a long-sleeved tunic reaching to the ankle. One commentator who takes this view says that being a a long-sleeved tunic Tunic reaching to the ankle this garment was not a garment adapted to work But suitable to distinguish a superior or an overseer By this very garment the father Expressed his thought that this son should have preeminence over The rest in other words, he's dressing joseph as the boss in this understanding that said The ancient Greek Septuagint translation translates the Hebrew with words that literally mean tunic of diverse colors. And that's where we get the expression, a coat of many colors. Uh, This could indicate that the Septuagint translators thought of Joseph's robe as being composed of multiple colors or that they thought of it as being an embroidered uh, coat that featured fancy ornamentation and design to it. Fortunately, even if these possibilities are the meaning, the intent would be the same. Back in this day, the garments of the ruling classes were more brilliant in color and more complex than those of of the common people. So any of these other understandings, however you choose to understand what Joseph's robe or tunic is here, Uh, still indicates that Jacob is seeking to elevate Joseph above his brothers to distinguish him from them and to designate him as a ruler type of person. What we can know with certainty are three things about this garment that Jacob has made for Joseph. Number one, it serves as a visual symbol of Jacob's greater love for Joseph over his brothers Number two, it was no doubt a very loud, ostentatious garment that everyone would see from far away. And number three, it was Jacob's way of showing Joseph's destined preeminence over his brothers. You know, it's bad enough, you know, for a parent to love one child over the other. It's another thing for a parent to make it this obvious, right? I grew up as one of my parents' four children, and deep down, I could always sense that my parents loved me more than my siblings. (laughs) But over the years, they did an amazing job of treating us all the same so as to conceal that (laughs) fact that they loved me best. In fact, I I would often compliment them for doing such a great job of treating us all so equally, even though deep down they love me most of all. But Jacob didn't even have the sense to try to conceal his greater love for Joseph. Imagine being a sibling and your father gets your sibling a jacket that says, Daddy's favorite child, whom he loves most of all. Imagine that. That's what's happening here in Genesis 37. As R. Kent Hughes says, Jacob's blatant favoritism is unconscionable. He should have known what a toxic brew this would create in his household. Some of you even grew up in homes where, though it may not have been this obvious, there were differences. There was favoritism in your household, and you know the pain that that can cause. Jacob should have thought through how his favoritism would have impacted Joseph's brothers, and he should have known that he was doing no favors to Joseph either, treating him in this way. His favoritism of Joseph destroyed any chance that Joseph would have had of having a good relationship with his brothers, a fact which becomes obvious in the next verse. In fact, look at verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Joseph's brothers didn't just wrongly misconstrue Jacob's affections. Jacob actually did love Joseph more than them, and they could see that with their own eyes. And they hated Joseph for it so much that they can't even speak to Joseph on friendly terms Anymore. They could not stand Joseph trying to be friendly toward them, and they could not say a nice word to Joseph either. Confession here, Dur- during my high school years, I shared a bedroom with my younger brother who, uh, during that time period, just seemed to always have everything that I wanted yet didn't have. And I'm ashamed to admit that I became consumed with jealousy against my younger brother. And I went almost two years without hardly saying a word to him. I probably spoke five sentences to him in that two-year span. I had nothing nice to say to my brother. And when he would try to talk nice to me, it just was like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Sometimes in the morning, I would go downstairs to get ready for school and take a shower. And when I would come back to my room, I would notice that he had made my bed (laughs) in an effort to connect with me and reach out to me. And that just made me batty that he would do that. With everything in me, I wanted to yank all the sheets off the bed and throw them out the window because what his actions showed me was that now on top of everything else, he's more righteous than I am. And when the Lord got a hold of my life at the age of 19, the first person on my list of people to go to and ask forgiveness from was my little brother, who was gracious to forgive me. I share this to say that I'm seeing myself in what Joseph's brothers are feeling, and I'm grateful that God delivered me and forgave me of the jealousy that was consuming me in high school. Right now, Joseph's brothers are in the thick of these awful emotions. Joseph tattles on his brothers in verse 2, and his dad loves him more than he loves his brothers in verse 3, so much that he makes him a tunic that shows, advertises this favoritism. As a result, Joseph's brothers hate him and can't even speak a friendly word to Joseph. Imagine what life was like in this household during this time. You say, where is God in all of this? Well, he's present And he's actually going to give Joseph a dream to make matters worse. (laughs) This brings us to the next development in the story of Joseph's brother's plot to dash his dreams of dominion over them. Number three, Joseph's brothers hate him even more after he tells them his first dream of dominion. Observe what happens in verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. We miss this actually in the English, but the Hebrew here would make the Jewish reader laugh. Remember that the name Joseph means to add. And literally, we're told in this verse that when Joseph told his dream to his brothers, they added more to hate him. That's literally what it says. In other words, the verse reads this way. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they Josephed to hate him even more. What was it about the dream that made them add to their hatred of Joseph? Listen to Joseph's dream as he recounts it for his brothers, beginning in verse 6. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. You guys have to hear this, he's saying. For behold, or literally see... We were binding sheaves in the field and lo, or see my sheaf rose up and also stood erect and behold or see your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Three times in verse seven, Joseph is calling upon his brothers to behold or to see what happened in his dream as their sheaves left their place and gathered around and bowed down to Joseph's. And notice what Joseph says in verse 6. He says, listen to this dream. He doesn't just want them to listen to him tell them the dream. He calls upon them to give heed to the dream itself. In other words, Joseph believes that this dream is communicating a message, and he wants his brothers to listen to the message that's being conveyed by this dream. And honestly, there's a certain cluelessness about Joseph in his actions here. He has to see right now that his brothers can't say a nice word to him. He has to know that it's because his dad loves him more than them and dresses him like royalty. Yet somehow Joseph thinks it's the path of wisdom to approach his brothers and tell them this amazing dream he had of their sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. Did he expect them to say, wow, you know, Joseph, I've been hating you, but this dream really helps me. Thank you. I'm sorry for hating you, and I can't wait to bow down before you one day. I'm trying to imagine how I would have responded if my little brother had approached me in high school and told me he had a dream in which I had bowed down to him. It would have sent me over the moon with resentment and intensified whatever I was already feeling against him during that time. Whatever response Joseph would have expected, we're told the response that he got. Look at verse 8. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? Notice those words, reign and rule, which actually show up twice each in the Hebrew text of this verse. Joseph's brothers got the interpretation of Joseph's dream loud and clear. They understand that Joseph is suggesting that he would reign and rule over them in a future day. And they're asking these questions as a protest against that. They do not, at this point, view Joseph's dream as some kind of prophecy from God. They view it as an expression of Joseph's inflated ego. Of course this kid would have this dream, which makes them hate Joseph all the more. Look at how verse 8 ends. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And again, just as in verse 5, you could translate this literally. They Josephed to hate him more for his dreams and for his words. As R. Kent Hughes says, their thinking about Joseph goes something like this. This arrogant, pompous, ego-centered, self-focused brat is awash in megalomania, this spoiled little braggart. They already hated him, and the hearing of this dream now injects steroids into their hatred of him about the only thing that could possibly make the situation worse is another dream, which is exactly what happens. And this brings us to the next development in this story of Joseph's brother's plot to dash Joseph's dreams of dominion over them. Observe what happens beginning in verse 9. The text says, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo! Or see, I have had still another dream. And behold, or see, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. I think if most of us in this room had had a second dream like this under these circumstances, we would have kept it to ourselves, right? And not shared it. With our brothers, given the fact that the first dream didn't go over so well. But Joseph seems insistent on telling his brothers this dream. And this dream is even more grandiose than the first dream. It's not sheaves of wheat belonging to his brothers, bowing down to Joseph's sheaf of wheat. It's the sun, moon and 11 stars bowing down to Joseph himself. And we're told in verse 10 that Joseph doesn't simply tell this second dream to his brothers, but he also shares it with his father. The question is, why in the world would Joseph be so intent on telling everyone this dream when his brothers didn't like the first one that he told? The reason is that there is special significance in the fact that Joseph has essentially had the same dream twice now, you will recall that later in Genesis, Pharaoh in Egypt will have two very similar dreams about Egypt's upcoming years of plenty and famine. And Joseph, when he's giving the interpretation, will attach great significance to the fact that he had had essentially the same dream twice. He will say to the Pharaoh in Genesis forty-one thirty-two. 32, He will say the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice means that the matter is determined by whom? By God, and God will quickly bring it about. So in Joseph's mind, to have the same essential dream twice means I think we can say three things. Number one, that his dreams are from God, and this would confirm that. Number two, that the future events that these dreams represent have been determined by God. And number three, that God will bring these events to pass sooner rather than later. So Joseph wants his brothers to know this second dream because it validates his first dream as being from God, which his brothers had dismissed. We get no verbal response from Joseph's brothers to this second dream, but Jacob, Joseph's dad, responds, observe his response in verse 10. It says, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? He rebukes Joseph for even having this dream. And talking about it because he understands clearly the meaning of it right away. He knows that the dream means that he and Joseph's mother and all of his sons are going to bow down before Joseph in some future day. We actually don't know for sure who Jacob is referring to when he speaks of Joseph's mother. Uh, His mother, Rachel, has already passed away right after the birth of Benjamin. But Leah, his other wife, or Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant, had probably assumed the role of being a mother figure in Joseph's life, and perhaps Jacob is referring to one of the two of them here. As for how Joseph's brothers respond to the second dream, we, we actually see a shift That occurs. Uh, Clearly, they hate him even more than they did after his first dream, but we're told in verse 11 that his brothers were jealous of him. And so there's that word jealous that shows up. After the first dream, they simply saw Joseph's dream probably as the product of his own ego and hated him for it, but now that Joseph has had this second dream, Joseph's brothers are realizing that these dreams are probably coming from God. As it says in the Jewish Hamash, these brothers are realizing that the source of the dreams had to be providential. Joseph would indeed become their master, and that provoked them to turn jealous. Joseph's brothers were already upset with the fact that their dad favored Joseph, but now they're realizing that God seems to be favoring Joseph and choosing him to rule over them. So at this point, Joseph's brothers don't like God's will as they have now come to understand it through these dreams. As for Jacob's response to what Joseph has said, we earlier saw that he rebuked Joseph and, um, and so forth, but we are told the following in verse 11. It says, but his father kept the saying in mind. He keeps what Joseph has shared in his mind with the thought that this is some kind of message from God and what Joseph has dreamed And Joseph's brothers must have noticed that their dad, though he responded initially the way he did, that he has turned pensive. And he's keeping what Joseph has said in mind and holding on to it, knowing that there's something to this. This is from God. And this had to have inflamed their jealousy even more. Something is afoot in God's plan. And Joseph's brothers Don't like it. So all the ingredients of this toxic brew have been mixed together, and all that is needed now is the right circumstances for everything to come to a head. And this brings us to the fifth development in the story of Joseph's brother's plot to dash Joseph's dreams of dominion over them. Number five, Jacob sends Joseph to check on the well-being of his brothers. Twice in verse 14, we're going to see... Uh, The Hebrew word shalom, but there will be no shalom in this family for a while. Observe what happens starting in verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. When Jacob had left Shechem several years prior, he evidently had um, probably left some of his large flock there, and now his sons have traveled about 50 miles north to go check on those flocks and to tend to them. And perhaps they were happy enough to go on this mission to get away from their dad and from Joseph. After they had been in Shechem for a while, Jacob begins to wonder how they are doing. So observe what he does in verse 13. Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he, Joseph, said, I will go. He's an obedient son. Verse 14, then he, Jacob, said, Go now and see about the welfare or the shalom, which means peace and safety. Go now and see about the shalom of your brothers and the shalom of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Being about 50 miles from Hebron, Shechem would have been a few-day journey by foot, if that's how Joseph is traveling. And Joseph travels this long distance looking for his brothers, and when he gets to Shechem, he can't find them because they've moved elsewhere. But observe what happens In verse 15, a man found him, and behold, he, Joseph, was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? We have no idea who this nameless man was, but Jewish tradition considers this nameless man an angel who appeared in the form of a man in order to facilitate God's providence. In the plan of God, Joseph must meet up with his brothers And that's never going to happen as long as Joseph is wandering around in Shechem looking for them. So this nameless man says, What are you looking for? And observe Joseph's reply in verse 16. He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Dothan was another 13 or 14 miles north of Shechem. observe how verse 17 ends. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. With each step that Joseph is taking away from Hebron toward Dothan, he gets further and further away from the protective reach of his father, having no clue about the misfortune that awaits him. By the way, very much unlike Christ, who knew the suffering that awaited him, As he marched toward Jerusalem to be crucified. This brings us to the final development in the story of Joseph's brother's plot to dash his dreams of dominion over them. Number six, Joseph's brothers conspire to bring Joseph's dreams of dominion to naught. They conspire to bring Joseph's dreams of dominion to naught. Observe what happens in verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. We learn later in this chapter that Joseph is wearing his fancy tunic. And I'm sure this made him very identifiable to his brothers from a distance And served as a lightning rod for their wrath and anger and hatred. Once Joseph's brothers see Joseph and his fancy tunic from afar, all of their hatred and their jealousy is awakened and makes their heart race with evil. As one writer says, with one accord, their hearts beat with a wild, rapid rhythm like drums. And boy, what evil comes pounding forth. From these drums, observe what they do in verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Literally what they're saying in the Hebrew is, behold, this Lord of the dreams comes. And calling Joseph this Lord of the dreams, they're either calling him a master of dreams. As the Amplified Bible translates it. Or they're mockingly referring to how Joseph is always the master in his dreams. Observe what they resolve to do with this master of dreams in verse 20. They say, now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. The scheme articulated here is not just one man's idea. The text tells us that they were saying these things to one another. One man says one thing. Another man says another until their wicked plot takes shape. By the time we get to the end of verse 20, their evil strategy is fourfold. First, they aim to kill Joseph. Second, they intend to throw his body into one of the pits which shows the depth of their hatred for Joseph, discarding his body and not even burying it after death would be the ultimate disgrace to Joseph. Third, they plan to tell their father that a wild beast killed him. They're already thinking about the story they're going to tell. The fourth element of their strategy is stated at the end of verse 20. Let us see what will become of, Of his dreams. And all of this just comes spinning out of their evil hearts on this occasion. And Joseph is still a long way off approaching them, having no clue what they are conspiring against him. When they say, Let us see what will become of his dreams, ultimately what they're saying is, Let's see what will become of his dreams of dominion over us. Let's see what becomes of his dominion that. God has given him dreams about. Deep down, these brothers know that God has chosen Joseph to rule over them one day, and they're not about to let that happen, even if that's something God wants. They don't ever want to bow before Joseph, and they're willing to commit murder and lie to their brokenhearted father in order to ensure that they would never, ever have to bow down to Joseph. Their plot is going to take further shape in the coming verses, and we'll study those verses in the coming weeks. But we'll stop here for today with their words. Let us see what will become of his dreams. I'm struck in just going through these verses this morning, how many times... We see words for seeing in the story today. Joseph's brothers saw that Jacob loved Joseph more than them in verse 4. In verse 7, Joseph tells them three times to see or behold what he had dreamed. In verse 9, he tells them twice to see or behold what he dreamed in a second dream. When Joseph finds them in Dothan, we're told that Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance and plotted to kill him. And then in verse 20, they say, then let us see. We want to see. Let us see what will become of his dreams. These brothers think they see clearly, but they're blind. They don't see right now that Joseph's rule, when it comes, will be a good rule, a rule that will bring them forgiveness and hospitality and healing and abundant provision. His rule will be their wildest dreams come true when it arrives that will preserve their families alive. But right now, they don't see that blinded by their jealousy. They want to kill Joseph so that he will never rule over them. And then their plan is after killing him, let us see what will become of his dreams. We already know what will become of Joseph's dreams, don't we? Joseph's brothers, their plot is going to change in the coming verses. They will sell Joseph to some traders who will take Joseph down to Egypt as a slave. Joseph will rise to power in the land of Egypt and become the second most powerful man in the land. Second only to the Pharaoh. And under Joseph's leadership, under his rule, Egypt will have plenty of food during a time of great famine. Joseph's brothers will come to Egypt in search of food during that time of famine. And in the end, Joseph will receive them and he will invite them to come to Egypt and to live near to him so that he can love them and take care of them. In Genesis 47, Joseph will say to them, listen to some of these words. In verse 10 of Genesis 47, he will say to his brothers in this future day when they come to Egypt, he says, you shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. There I will provide for you and behold or see your eyes, see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. And that future day, Joseph almost literally is going to be pleading with them to read his lips, to see and to believe the goodness of. Of his heart toward them. And these brothers will respond by happily moving to Egypt and living under Joseph's good rule in Egypt. And they will come to know in their own experience that Joseph's dominion is a good dominion. And they will look back and they will mourn in that future day over how foolishly they tried to bring this dominion, which is so good, to naught. What Joseph's brothers are doing in our passage today points us to what people did with Jesus 2,000 years ago. And even Stephen makes this connection in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Jesus came to his Jewish brothers 2,000 years ago speaking truth to them about the evil of their hearts. And they hated Jesus for it for the bad report that he had given them about themselves. Jesus told them the truth about his unique relationship with the Father, and they hated him for that. Jesus' ministry was adorned and beautified with powerful miracles that God had enabled that represented God's approval of Jesus. And what did did they do to Jesus? They were jealous of Jesus. They hated him. They plotted to kill him, to destroy him. They did everything they could to ensure that they would never, ever have to bow down to this Jesus. They thought they, at that time, could see so clearly. But they were blind to the truth that Christ is a good king. And his dominion is an exceedingly good dominion, full of forgiveness and love And provision and grace and relationship for all who are willing to bow before him. They didn't see that Jesus was truly worthy of being his father's only begotten, unique and preeminent son. And I ask you this morning, what about you? What about you this morning? Where are you in connection with Jesus? What do you do with the fact that Jesus speaks truth to you about your sin and about the atonement that you need for the sins that you have committed throughout your lifetime, the atonement that he provides through his death for you on the cross? Will you receive that truth from Jesus or will you hate him for speaking truth to you? What do you do with the fact that God the Father twice speaks from heaven in the Gospels and brags about his son saying, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. What do you do with the fact that Jesus was attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him? And the greatest of all miracles was raising Jesus from the dead by which God thundered his approval of Jesus. What will you do with the revelation of God's word that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, including yours, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you embrace this Jesus as your Lord and bow before him, or will you seek to push him out of your life and go your own way? The truth is there is nothing more futile in all the world than resisting Christ's rule, than resisting the lordship of Christ. Joseph's brothers tried their best to get rid of Joseph Yet their actions actually set in motion a chain of events that led to Joseph's brothers running right smack dab into Joseph reigning as Lord in the land of Egypt. Christ's enemies crucified Christ and thought in killing him that they were done with him. Yet God raised him from the dead and elevated Jesus to sit at his own right hand. As the sovereign Lord of the universe where Jesus reigns right now as I speak. And one day, every single person, whether they are a friend or foe of Jesus Christ, every person in this room will run into Jesus on judgment day. And they will confess, you will confess that he is Lord in that day and your knee will bow And it is Jesus and him alone who will decide your fate and the fate of every human being. He will decide the eternal fate of every human being who has ever lived. How will you respond to Jesus, God's only begotten son? Will you be jealous of his right to rule over your life? and to direct your life and insist instead on being your own ruler? Will you be jealous of his right to be your judge and pretend instead that you are your own judge? Will you be jealous of his right to be bowed down to and prefer to bow down to your own will instead? Will you be jealous of his right to be glorified in all things and choose instead to live for your own glory? Or will you rejoice in his glory and happily bow down to him as your Lord and enter into a life under his amazingly good rule and dominion? Jesus is a good king, you know. That's what those of us here who have believed in Jesus have discovered and continue to discover day after day of living under the rule of Jesus and obedience to him. He's the only Lord who will never let us down and who always stands ready to forgive us when we let him down. We're told in the Bible that eye is not seen, nor his ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that he has prepared for those who love him and who are under his rule. If you have never bowed before this good Lord Jesus and called upon him as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to come before him today and bow before him and believe in him and experience the forgiveness of sins and relationship and the love that he freely will give to you if you call upon his name as Lord and believe in him as your savior. Bow before him today. If you've never bowed before him, bow before him today. I plead with you to do that. And you will discover in this life And in the next, that Christ's dominion is a good dominion, a better dominion than you can right now imagine. And it's so much better than the nightmare of your own dominion. Let's pray together. If you feel God's Spirit working in your heart, and you feel Christ calling you to himself, I want you to know you're not here by accident Respond to his call and just say, man, I, I'm so tired of my own dominion. I'm so tired of ruling over myself. I'm a terrible lord of my own life. I want Jesus. I want him to be my lord. I want him to be in control. And I want him to save me. Just even right where you're seated, call upon his name. Repent of your sins and ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and these are not just old stories. These narratives that we find in Genesis show us the map of our own souls in so many ways ways we would never quite access were it not for true historical accounts like what we find in a passage like this. Human nature has not changed in thousands of years of human history. And our need for salvation, our need for deliverance from our hate and from our jealousy and from our anger and from thoughts of murder, Lord, we need a Savior and you are the only one who can save us from these things. So we ask, Lord, that you would just cause an explosion of faith to happen in this room, that you would give faith even for the first time to some in this room, that they would believe in you even right now for the first time. And for those of us who know you, Lord, we, we say to you that we believe but help our unbelief. There are so many moments where we're not sure your dominion is truly a good dominion. Every time we go our own way and do our own thing and willfully disobey what you tell us to do, we are in that moment manifesting the fact that we're not so sure that you are truly a good Lord. And we're no better than Joseph's brothers. We confess that to you and ask you to help us help our unbelief. And give us eyes to see your beauty and your goodness that we would happily dwell underneath your good lordship. And give our lives to telling others about the good Lord that you are. You're such a good Lord that even when we fail to do the very things we're talking about, you're there to forgive and you don't abandon us and you keep loving us. And calling us back to yourself. You pick us up when we fall. And you never let us down. Because you're a good Lord. And we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to give of our offerings to you. Receive these funds. Do much with all that is given. in this offering for the glory of our precious Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. And all God's people said.